I'm negative. No, negative. No, Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time for 80 minutes every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And our podcast shortly after it, thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3. FM. This is Hell also airs in an abbreviated version every week on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. And we are now podcast at the free freeform, nonprofit, non-commercial, United Kingdom-based online radio outlet, Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. Last week's show began with me lamenting the return of mask mandates here in Chicago in the introduction of proof of vaccination in order to enter bars and restaurants. In doing so, I welcomed the new year by referring to it as 2020 Part 3. It seemed pretty clever when I was writing it, but when I heard a late-night TV show host use the exact same line and then follow up that news with uh, news that there is no real hangover cure, exactly as reported here on This Is Hell, I had the realization that it wasn't all that clever after all. In fact, it must have been pretty obvious, as I sincerely doubt late-night TV shows are stealing lines from This Is Hell. In retrospect, it's pretty damn pessimistic. However, seeing the worst in everything and expecting the worst to happen, it's, it's the idea that everything is always getting worse, which is easy to believe, as the pandemic was globally more deadly in 2021 than it was in 2020. And with the planet annually setting records when it comes to burning fossil fuels, which are causing yet another crisis, climate change, it's pretty easy to believe that everything's always getting worse. But what if every time we do think everything is always getting worse, what if that actually chips away at the possibility of making any real change? What if it can even lead to limiting our imaginations, including dreams that another world is possible? What if being cynical and distrusting society leads to the dead end that we are trying to avoid? We'll discuss all that and likely far more in a few minutes when we have the return of cultural critic, writer, author, university professor, journalist, Henry Giroux, who wrote the article, Amid Apocalyptic Cynicism, Let's Embrace Radical Hope in the New Year, which was posted at Truthout, where Henry is a member of Truthout's board of directors. You can find out all you want about Truthout at truthout.com. The article is part of the series, The Public Intellectual, where progressive academics address important social issues in a language that is both rigorous and accessible. Henry currently holds the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest in the English and Cultural Studies Department and is the Paulo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. His most recent book is Pandemic Pedagogy, Education in a Time of Crisis. Henry's newest book, Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance, is set to be published by Bloomsbury 
in March. Henry was on most recently back in June of 2020. I'm completely surprised that he was not on in 2021. But things are just kind of a blur since the pandemic began. But back then, when Henry was on in June of 2020, we discussed his counterpunch article, Racial Domestic Terrorism and the Legacy of State Violence. You can find that interview and many of our discussions with Henry at thisishell.com when you search on his last name, Giroux, G-I-R-O-U-X. You can follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giroux. And you can find out more about Henry at henryadrew.com. Thanks to listener Ken M. for suggesting we have Henry return to This Is Hell this week. Thanks, Ken. If you want to suggest a guest, and if we have your suggested guest on the air, you will be thanked on air. Do what Ken did by either emailing us your guest suggestion at chuck at thisishell.com, sending us a message via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or DMing us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Oh, not a whole lot. Uh, have a little, <laughs> have a little uh, late Christmas wish list to, uh, What's to that? ask for. What's your wait, late, I, wishness, late Christmas wish list? I know we have a pretty great setup here, but it'd be amazing if we could be able to talk to our guests while we were streaming live. <laughs> You're having an issue with that? Yes. So you Today can, I am. <laughs> so you cannot talk to the guests while we are streaming live? That's correct. How do we circumvent this problem? Well, theoretically, someone, Theron or Alex, says that we have a way of doing that, but I, we haven't quite been trained or <laughs> tested out on it, so we need to... We need to thoroughly uh, vent that situation and check it out. Well, put a fire under Theron and Alex's ass and we'll get that done. I've not been able to stop thinking about the final interview on last week's shows with Aaron Vansingian, who wrote the Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World, a Journey Through British Columbia this November, showed how fragile the economy really is. Aaron's eyewitnesses account, eyewitness account of the flooding, mudslides, and snowstorms in British Columbia from mid-November to early December last year, and the inability from getting from one place to another with local uh, prices skyrocketing on everything from gasoline to milk while high-rise construction that would seem to spit in the face of climate change, to me, well, that conversation was eye-opening and kind of mind-bending. The kind of whistling by the graveyard, that willful ignorance of an imminent disaster that denialism really got me thinking not only about our future, but our near future and the present when we are already and have been living with climate change. I just could not stop considering what all that means for us right now. And following Henry, I'll be sharing some of my thoughts on our conversation with Aaron, so stay tuned in for that. But more importantly than me being obsessed with our conversation with Aaron from last week's show, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? <laughs> what are you testing positive for? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hal wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The this Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, as well as the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, and I think there's some with Henry on that flash drive. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. 
Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We are completely commercial free. We don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit. So our only source of funds is you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth as we do each and every week. Thanks to the following listeners who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support recently. Thanks to Gidden L. in Ronert Park, California, who picked up a couple of camping mugs and a couple of trucker caps. Thanks to Andrew O. of Warner Robins, Georgia, who got a trucker cap as well. And thanks to Rowan W. of Brooklyn, New York, who picked up three This Is Hell camping mugs. Thank you, Gidden, Andrew, and Rowan. Richard will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Henry Giroux on the danger of apocalyptic cynicism. Again, the question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is an Alka-Seltzer old-fashioned. That sounds disgusting. I hate old fashions, and I'm not crazy about (laughs) Alka-Seltzer. Well, listen on. (laughs) (laughs) On New Year's Eve... Forbes ran an article headlined, 16 bartenders share the hangover remedies they swear by. In it, Forbes quotes Jen Ackroll, bartender at Kaimana Beach Hotel in Honolulu, Hmm, Hawaii, saying, my my go-to is an Alka-Seltzer old-fashioned. To be completely honest, plain old Alka-Seltzer is a godsend. But we are bartenders, and when the opportunity to get crafty presents itself, what are we to do? (laughs) Here's how to make it. One packet Alka-Seltzer, one large chilled bottle soda water with aggressively large bubbles. Do they have different different size bubbles? I thought that was odd, too. Aggressively (laughs) large bubbles? Like it's going to kick you in the face? Eight generous dashes and... Angostura bitters. bitters. Chuck. Oh, sorry. Chuck the Alka-Seltzer into eight ounces of chilled soda water in a glass larger than eight ounces in the event that it fizzes over. Remember, you are hungover and cannot handle that kind of crisis. (laughs) Slug the bitters in, stir it with your finger, and garnish with an orange peel. No ice cubes. They hold back the magical salty powder that that never seems to dissolve. Drink it as quickly as possible without giving yourself an ice cream headache, and then finish the rest of the soda water at your leisure. Additionally re- recommended is a lengthy shower that the Sierra Club would disapprove of. A shower is also a good place to finish the soda water. Or you can just drop it down the drain. <laughs> that makes this week's Hangover Cure an Alka-Seltzer old-fashioned. How do you make aggressively large bubbles in your soda water. I just, uh, just shake it up, I guess. Threw me for a loop there. I know. It's very odd. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board as Richard and Alex do, and, and as Sebastian will begin doing this year, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell? It's the next best thing to winning the lottery. 
and it's a lot easier. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and our Patreon podcast now on Thursday at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well, and we actually pay our board ops a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. We do have other positions available where you can do the work remotely. And if you are interested in that kind of work because you do not live in the Chicago area, again, contact us at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, the dangers of self-interest and distrusting everybody in our age of crisis we will have this week in rotten history some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what are you testing positive for what are you testing positive for and i'll be sharing my final thoughts on last week's final guest another end of the world is possible this is hell overcoming our current crises of both the pandemic and climate change at time at times seems uh, unsurmountable at home by ourselves with our own thoughts. It's easy to think that nothing can be done and that we as a society are simply not up to the task, maybe even doomed. Considering our depressing present and future is an easy trap to fall into, especially in this day and age where freedom is focused on the individual rather than any social responsibility that is necessary in tackling any of our current challenges. Here to help us have a better understanding of our present so maybe we can better confront our future returning to this is hell cultural critic writer university professor journalist henry Giraud wrote the article amid apocalyptic cynicism let's embrace radical hope in the new year which was posted at Truthout, where henry is a member of Truthout's board of directors welcome back to this is hell henry Hi, Chuck. How are you? Good to be back. Oh, my God. It's so great to hear your voice. It always puts a smile on my face. No matter if you're talking about something that's depressing or you're talking about something optimistic, every time I hear your voice, it's always great to hear your voice, sir. It's good to hear your voice, too. So cynicism is an inclination to believe that people are motivated purely by self-interest and a distrust of society. It is the belief that people are generally selfish and dishonest. As George Monbiot wrote back in 2015, neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. It redefines citizens as consumers whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling. As guests have pointed out on our show, at the heart of neoliberalism is homo economicus, or economic man, the figurative human being characterized by the infinite ability to make rational decisions. Michel Foucault even wrote way back in 1979, Homo economicus is an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur of himself. This is true to the extent that in practice, the stake in all neoliberal analyses is the replacement every time of Homo economicus as partner of exchange with a Homo economicus as entrepreneur of himself, being for himself his own capital, being for himself his own producer, being for himself the source of his earnings. So, Henry, what is the relationship between the apocalyptic cynicism you observe? And neoliberalism. Are we cynical because neoliberalism rewards cynicism? 
I not only think it rewards cynicism, I, I think it uses cynicism as a political tool and ideology to basically depoliticize people. I mean, it's, it's, it's about more than simply saying that there's no such thing as community, that you know, social contract doesn't matter, that the very realm of the social uh, has nothing to do with questions of social responsibility and compassion and justice. It basically says you're alone in the world, and it does more than that. It says that you're not only alone, it says that all problems that you face are basically individual problems, so that if there's climate change, you're responsible for it because you're not taking out the bins the green bins. Um, if, if there's a war or poverty, it's, you're responsible for it because uh, maybe, maybe you're too lazy to get a job or really think about how important war is. But I, and, I, and I also think that it, it does something else that very few people talk about. And, and what it does is it prevents people from translating private troubles into basically larger systemic problems. So we really can't connect the dots so it, it not only produces a regressive form of agency, one that basically is situated almost entirely in fear and self-interest and, and uh, you know, a consumer logic that says that only one person is left on the island and buy as much as you can. It, it basically depoliticizes people by, in, in a sense, refashioning their agency in ways in which they have no control over it, or very little control. So does personal complicity or, let's say, making consumer choices, does that distract us from what the real problem is that we are facing? What, it, it, I, I, wouldn't, I would never say that consumer choices are terrible. That's, that doesn't make any sense to me. We, we all buy things, and, and we do it in some, in some cases for good reasons. I, I think that when you, the, the obligations of citizenship are only defined by consumerism, then I think something tragic has happened. And what's happened is that other obligations of citizenship that really matter, like, you know, being responsive to larger social problems, working collectively with people to bring some hope and justice in the world, uh, reclaiming language and history as, as resources to basically expand and fulfill our sense of what it means to take control over our lives, to understand ourselves and others in the larger world. I think that when citizenship is so stripped of any kind of meaning that suggests that you know we have to work together to make the planet work, we have to work together to recognize injustices, we have to work together to make sure power is distributed somewhat equally, we have to work together to eliminate all these forces that we now see rising in the United States, which is really about to throw, throw the United States into the abyss of fascism. I, I mean, you know, this is not just about a crisis of politics. It's about a crisis of agency. It's about a crisis of consciousness. It's about a crisis of education. And I think that cynicism and neoliberalism, with its unbelievable assault on the social, on the individual, its regressive celebration of self-interest, uh, is a poison. It's a toxic. And it's basically destroying the planet. And it provides the foundation for, uh, for fascism. You know, Adorno said something once that I, I never forgot when I read it. And, and he said, if you really, and maybe Oh, and Bertolt Brecht said it in different ways. He said, you know, if you really want to know about fascism, you better look at capitalism. And they're right. 
There was a special on CNN that I stumbled across this uh, weekend, Henry, where they were talking about the threat to American democracy. And in it, Fareed Zakaria has this clip of Ronald Reagan giving his, uh, you know, America's the beacon of democracy on the hill, the beacon on the hill of democracy. And he lamented the fact that we have left that belief in democracy that was embraced by Reagan and the Reagan revolution. How? Oh, that's just yeah. That's just nonsense. I, I mean, Ronald Reagan had no conception of democracy whatsoever. He unleashed the the beast of neoliberalism in ways that destroyed unions, that defunded public goods, that violated the social contract, that basically increased funds for the military. It's it's a joke to talk about Reagan being concerned about freedom. I mean, freedom for Reagan was basically rooted in the notion of American exceptionalism, in which the beacon America is the beacon of the United States is the beacon of democracy meant that we could dictate what that meant to every country in the world, especially those that actually took freedom seriously in their fight for socialism. But there's one other thing, and it seems to me that any, any individual, any politician who says that government is the problem uh, <laughs> that we need to uh, get rid of, if, if you read that carefully, what that really means is that the government is a problem only when it interferes with the market by trying to regulate it and to prevent massive inequalities emerging under a neoliberal tsunami or hurricane that Reagan and his wife, Margaret Thatcher, basically unleashed. So this is just, that line is stupid. It's nonsense. It's, a, it's, it's code for a, a form of ideological domination. It's propagandistic dribble. I, I, you know, you can say I don't take that too seriously. Yeah, exactly. I just, when I heard that, I thought it was an attempt by Fareed Zakaria to s- seem apolitical or objective in trying to embrace Reaganism. So in case there were conservatives or even independents who backed Reagan in the past, they wouldn't see him as somebody who's attacking Ronald Reagan. And I just think that that's, uh, that's just a ridiculous path to go down if you're thinking of trying to be objective. It just well, if you, if, if, first of all, I don't know what it means to be objective. Right. I, I mean... Does that mean we put our head in the sands and claim that we don't have a point of view? Does that mean we grew up in societies where the best thing that we can do is escape the values that basically uh, shape our own sense of who we are and how we deal with the world? I mean, the question is not whether or not we're objective. The question is whether or not you take the truth seriously and whether or not you combine notions of the truth with questions of equality, justice, and freedom. So it, it seems to me that when I hear that term, I want to run for the woods um, because that usually means that you know we're talking about not only uh, some, sort, some sort of odd notion of, you know, being neutral, it, it also suggests that you believe in the notion of balance. So that when we talk about people who, are, who, who believe that there's a climate crisis, the news, the mainstream news says things not like, well, let's now interview a flat earth person uh, uh, and get the other side. I, I mean, it's, 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 it's a really, it's, it, it upends any notion of what it means to be a, a public intellectual and be a responsible journalist and a responsible educator by in, in some way addressing the fact that what we should be striving for is to make the planet a better a better place a more just place that's what i'm concerned about i'm not concerned about whether or not values basically drive what i say i'm concerned about what kind of values they are and what kind of world those values speak to that seems to me far more important than this nonsense about balance and ob- objectivity In your most recent writing at Truth Out, you write, as I get older, holidays, especially the emergence of a new year, become both a time of remembrance and joy. They offer memories steeped in both new beginnings and loss, the value of loved ones and close friends, the beauty of solidarity forged in giving and sharing, and a hope that merges struggle 
passion and justice. You see solidarity in the holidays in the form of giving and sharing. How important is it to recognize moments of solidarity in advancing the cause of solidarity? After all, most people may not think of the holidays as promoting solidarity, but you do. Does that recognition contribute to more acts of solidarity? I I think that once that we recognize that there's no such thing as living in a world without interconnections that make the world meaningful, we lose something. We lose our sense of justice. We lose our sense of compassion. We lose our sense of love. We lose our sense of being able to exist in a world outside of our own narrowly regressive self-interest. And I, and I think that to be able to recognize that, to be able to be inside the experiences of others, to try to understand what they're going through, and to recognize that you're not just doing that because you are charitable or kind, you're doing that because the world necessitates that we do that. Because my problem is also your problem in some ways, as we've learned, of course, with COVID. Uh, you know, you can't have massive degrees of inequality and, and, and you know, have almost all of Africa be for the most part, not vaccinated, while the rest of the world is vaccinated, the advanced industrial countries of the world increasingly vaccinated, because the germ mutates. I mean, we live in a global world. These interconnections are something that we can't avoid. But I guess what I'm really trying to say, Chuck, is that we need a new language to affirm the social. So to claim that we need others is not just a claim that emerges out of an individualized notion of compassion. It's a claim that says that the social contract matters, that the notion of social matters, that responsibility matters. We have a responsibility to future generations. We have a responsibility to our children and other people's children. But I think, you know, I've always been moved by Bertrand Russell's comment near the end of his life. You know, he said, there are three things that have guided my life. And he said, in this order, he said, the longing for love, the longing for knowledge, and the, and, and the longing to eliminate the suffering of other human beings. And I think that when you put those things together, they speak to a sense of passion, a sense of compassion, a sense of justice, and the need for a critical consciousness that understands the relationship of all of those, not just in relation to our own happiness, but in relation to a notion of solidarity, which contributes to a kind of joy that is collective and not just individual. That would seem like a great way for us to all be in this together. The media was beating us with like a cudgel with this idea that we are all in this together. Uh, Are we, when it comes to the pandemic, are we all in this together? And why does the media promote that idea when it may not be completely accurate? They, They promote that idea because they operate off the assumption that relations of power are not uh, inordinately distributed because they have no language for class differences. They have no language for for fascism. They have no language for a politics that makes this notion that we're all in it together uh, incredibly false because it creates a kind of standard that says that we're all equal in terms of both the choices we make, the power relations that we inhabit, and the options and the choices that we have. Well, that's just nonsense. I'm sorry. You know, when I drive down the highway and I see a billboard put up by Exxon and it says, we're all in this together, 
Let's make sure that we, you know, address these environmental problems. You know what that means. That means it hides the power relationships, which suggests that while we may all be in it together, that only means we suffer the effects together. <laughs> we don't generate the problems together. Those problems are generated in a vastly, in a, in a world that is vastly unequal in terms of its power relations. You also write that the dawn of the new year rests not merely on long-cherished narratives, but also offers a time for renewed visions. It is also about birth, the emergence of new possibilities, the weighing of mistakes, a renewed sense of struggle against the haters, liars, and the dreadful conditions that produce and support them. It is about a gentle kiss and touch that comes early in the morning with the ones you love. Such moments speak to falling into the comforting abyss of desire, becoming more conscious of what it means to make yourself vulnerable so you can step outside of the privatized prisons that a brutal economic system puts us in. Vulnerable outside of the privatized prisons that a brutal economic system puts us in. Is that vulnerability, that susceptibility to harm, the reason we do not step outside of our privatized prison built by brutal economies? Is there a sense that our privatized prison provides safety and security, deterring us from seeing what is outside of it and doubting, if not dismissing, any alternative? I, I think that these privatized prisons are social constructions that seems to suggest that the world we live in is not only cruel uh, and violent, but there's no alternative to it. And I, and I think that when we think in those terms, we have no language except to believe that, you know, that we're all on the island together, but only one person survives. This, this survival of the fittest ethos, this notion that we're engaged in a war, this Bentham notion that we're in, Hobbesian notion that we're engaged in a, in a war of all against all, is basically part of a war culture that militarizes all social relationships and weaponizes every possibility for kindness and justice in ways so as to treat them with contempt and disdain. And I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, when, when you live in a society such as the United States, where you have $25 billion being added onto a military budget that was not asked for, so it's now $750 billion, and yet all it would take is $25 billion to eradicate uh, poverty, homelessness and poverty in the United States, particularly among children. You have to ask yourself, what produces that ethic? I have a term for this that I'm playing with. It's called ethicide. And ethicide is a term that suggests the death of ethics, the death of social responsibility, you know, the death of any sense of believing that our actions have social cost and that we have to understand those costs in order to be in a world and not basically carry around the dark menace of a fascist politics, a capitalist politics that says that greed, wealth, power in their worst moments of what really make us human and drive us. They don't make us human. They turn us into monsters. And, and I think any system that turns us into monsters by turning its back on questions of justice and social responsibility has to raise questions about, and here's where it really gets interesting for me, the formative culture that produces that. That's what I'm interested in. You know, how does this mode of agency come into being? 
How does this way of thinking become part of the, the, the public imagination? How does this notion of identity become so collective that you have a Republican Party almost in its entirety, in its entirety, who believes in a lie and in a cult figure? Uh, you know, th this is about the shaping of consciousness. I mean, where does this happen? And where it happens is in an expanded notion of education that moves from the schools to the tragedy of an institution like Fox News and Tucker Carlson, who actually claims, as you know, uh, that January 6th was caused by the FBI. And, of course, his colleague, Major Taylor Green there, Marjorie Taylor Green, Gets and that crew, uh, who, who want to shoot people in the head in order to basically, uh, you know, uh, achieve certain political goals. What, I mean, what kind of world do we live in when this is not on the fringe anymore, but becomes the center of politics? And how does it happen? And how does cynicism and the death of hope contribute to that? And you point out that, as you've been saying, that we need a new language, vision, and motivations to embrace yeah. a future that imagines the fullness of justice, compassion, equality, and democracy. Why we need is a that, language. Why is Sorry, that, Chuck. Why is that language lacking? Is it that we never had that language or that we've forgotten them or in some way they were erased? Is there something keeping us from that language, vision, as well as motivations? You hit it. You hit it right on the head. Language, like the struggle over language and the struggle over meaning is about the struggle over three things, identities, politics, and power. And if that's the case then we have to ask ourselves, what has happened in the United States, economically, educationally, and politically, to sabotage a language that lends itself to the expansion of democracy and democratic rights and justice? What has basically taken place economically, institutionally, politically, culturally, and educationally? And I'll tell you where, how it goes, and I'll be very brief. I'm going to talk about three kinds of fundamentalisms, which to me are part of what I call a larger machinery of authoritarianism and death. The first is an economic system that basically elevates profits over human need, and we know what that means. I don't have, I, that's pretty obvious now. Secondly, there's a religious fundamentalism that in the name of, of God violates, it seems to me, every precept of religious justice because it wants to basically argue that white Christians basically uh, are the elevated uh, species, so to speak, and that we should do, we can, we can basically uh, justify every kind of injustice in the interest of, of that kind of fundamentalism. Thirdly, there's the fundamentalism of manufactured ignorance. And I think that what we see in the United States is an attempt not just simply to dissolve by def the, the distinction between truth and misrepresentations, to eliminate the possibility for recognizing lies, and in, uh, so to speak, but we basically eliminate the ability for people to distinguish between good and evil. That's the tragedy here. And so it, it, it seems to me, in the midst of all of that, a new language emerges, and there's a language that's forgotten. This is the dialectic of something being gained and something being lost. And what's lost is the language of democracy, the language of community, the language of justice. I mean, how else to explain 
people like these morons uh, running around claiming that if you teach people about injustices in the United States, racial injustice, that somehow that makes white kids feel uncomfortable. And so therefore we should eliminate and white war, eliminate any reference to it in the, in the curriculum, eliminate the books that speak to it, eliminate racial history uh, of all sorts, so that basically uh, we, we can say that, you know, ex- American exceptionalism is the only way to get that's all there is. You know, we're just a great country and we don't have time to re- be considerate about our injustices. I mean, it, so what, what you have is you have, you combine those three moments and something emerges. And what emerges is a form of historical amnesia. And in that gap emerges something else, the logic of white supremacy. So you now have emerging of economic fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism, ignorance, and which are all elements of a, of a neoliberal worldview and racial cleansing. Now, I may be wrong, but that sounds like fascism to me. Yes. That sounds like an updated form of fascist politics. We are speaking with Henry Giroux, who wrote the article Amid Apocalyptic Cynicism, Let's Embrace Radical Hope in the New Year, which you can find at Truthout. Follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giroux and find out more about Henry at his website, Henry A. Giroux. So on history, you write the New Year offers a space to ponder what it means to reclaim history as a site of struggle, resistance, and civic courage. Is reclaiming history, I'm going to hate myself for asking this question, is reclaiming history rewriting history? Because that's a phrase the right uses to delegitimize any studying of history that veers from heroic stories of American exceptionalism. I I, I think when you believe that history is, is only about facts and not a matter of interpretation, or you believe that there aren't histories that become dangerous memories and therefore become repressed and excluded, you have a false understanding of what history is about. I mean, if you don't believe that history is a place that has to be interrogated and in some way understood, both in terms of how it misrepresents itself and in terms of what it offers to basically open up the possibility of expanding and learning from struggles that uh, expand the meaning of democracy, then I I think you've lost something. I mean, these people don't want to just freeze history. They want to rewrite it, but they want to rewrite it differently. They want to rewrite it in the name of domination. (laughs) They want to rewrite it in the name of white supremacy. You know, they want to rewrite it in ways that suggest that you can't study Martin Luther King. You can't read books about Rosa Parks. You can't read books about women's rights. You can't read books in which people basically say that history is both a resource and a site of struggle. That's what they want. And so this claim that somehow rewriting history is a crime is actually something they do without being ideologically aware of what they're rewriting is simply a propagandistic script for fascist politics. So how important is that rewriting of history to the forwarding of fascism? It's, it's crucial. It's crucial because fascism cannot exist without a language that normalizes itself. And that language Basically, part of that language comes from history, and it comes from rewriting history in order to erase it. You write erase it. Erase ahead. its injustices. You write about uh, reclaiming historical memory as a site of learning and resistance. It means making education central to politics. It means utilizing both a language of critique and a discourse of hope. It means building a mass movement with international ties and the struggle for social and economic justice. The right would argue making education central to p- politics would 
politicize history. What do you mean by making education central to politics? And can there be a history that is not politicized? I, I, I think that the best way to define that is this. this, this make, making education central to politics means that you can't understand the problem. You can't address the problem unless you can first understand it. So what we're really talking about here is how central agency, how central education is to both enlightening our sense of the world, uh, providing the tools to understand it, and basically, when necessary, providing the tools to change it. There, there's, there's no politics without understanding. Otherwise, you simply have fascism. You, you have people who have no control over their own sense of agency. Uh, and, and I guess to give you the short answer here, you can't have a democracy without informed citizens. I'm sorry. Uh, that's how it works. And it, it seems to me that if you believe that, and I certainly believe that, and many people believe that, and many writers believe that, uh, you know, education then becomes central to politics itself. But I want to make a distinction, Chuck, for you that addresses this kind of crap that the right wing puts out about politicizing education. I can, you can view education as either political or politicizing. Political means you get all the tools that you need to basically be a citizen who can operate in the world in order to understand it, in order to deal with it, in order to confront the problems that you confront. You learn how power works. You learn the great traditions. You learn about how other people live. You know, you learn about science. You know, you learn about rationality. Politicizing education means that you, education becomes a site of ideological tyranny. It means that you live in a world of certainty. You impose in a propagandistic way a very narrow, rigid line on what education is. In other words, it's, it's not education. It's either a form of training or it's a, it's a form of propagandistic nonsense and dribble, as the right is now arguing for. You know, people who attack critical race theory, these are the same people who are saying that, you know, you have to study history from the perspective of people who have written books that say things that slaves really enjoyed themselves. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 politics is certainly central to their education. But but I but I seem I, but it seems to me that without understanding how central it means to have critical citizens, uh, you can't understand why democracy has the potential to be something on the side of justice rather than something on the side of tyranny. And so I, I, it seems to me that, you know, that's the struggle that we're engaged in. Do you want a, an education that's political in the best sense, or do you want a politicizing education that is of the type that, for instance, again, you see at Fox News, you know, the endless lies, the conspiracy theories, uh, the distortion of history, the attack on the social good, the public good, the attack on the social contract. That's a politicizing education. It operates off a narrow ideological uh, narrative that basically disregards the truth, that disregards justice, and disregards what it means to basically offer people a comprehensive understanding of the world that enables them to learn how to govern rather than simply be governed. You also argue for reclaiming our sense of agency, consciousness, and the courage to never look away. That suggests that there was a time when we had a sense of agency, consciousness, and the courage to never look away. When did we have that agency, and do we, oh, sim oh, do we simply oh, need oh. to go back to an earlier time? 
I, I think we need to situate this historically. I, I think that if you look at the 60s, and I was born right after Lincoln died, so I remember the 60s like my friend Noam Chomsky very well. And I think the 60s were a turning point in American history because the smell of democracy was in the air everywhere. People were fighting against an unjust war. A government had lied to people to promote that war. It was fighting against the machinery of, the, of, of, of a corporatized, increasingly corporatized university. Uh, people marginalized by virtue of race, color, ethnicity were all of a sudden finding opportunities to, get, to have access to the university and to public goods. And something happened. And what happened was the Powell Commission. What happened was the Trilateral Commission. And with people like Samuel Huntington said, we have an excess of democracy in this country, and we've got to put a stop to it. And I guess what I'm saying is that we are now in the midst, and have been since the 1980s, of something that nobody wants to talk about. It's called a counter-revolution. And it's a revolution against democracy. And it's now reached its end point with Trump, who is simply a symptom and an end point rather than the source. He's the accelerant. That's all. So do you. What explains uh, out, outfits like uh, CNN only recognizing this now in the wake of Trump? That's right. This is a form of deadly presentism. It's paralyzed in the moment. It has no understanding of the larger underlying political, economic, social, and racial forces that have created these problems. It doesn't want to do that. It's too dangerous. And I'll be very frank with you. It's too dangerous because it would simply call uh, what I would call neoliberal capitalism into play. You, 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 can't do, you can't go back in history and understand this long, elongated counter-revolution without understanding the economic and political system that fueled it. Chamber of Commerce, I'm sorry, you know, the, the rise of financial institutions, the banks, uh, global capitalism. Do, do you really think that they believe in, in democracy? And do you think that they're not smart enough to realize, as they did in the 1970s, that the most important battleground to fight this was not with the military. It was with creating conservative institutions, the Heritage Foundation, the Olin Foundation. This was a battle of ideas. This was a battle over the collective consciousness and public imagination of people in the United States. And for the most part, they won. So why do those who engage in what you call apocalyptic cynicism not realize they are undermining their own agency, that they are disempowering themselves? Does simply believing that we are living, what we're living through right now is a nightmare, does that undermine our own agency? I, I think that, you know, there's, it's one thing to talk about the nightmare as a crisis, but it's another thing to talk about it as a catastrophe. And I think when you talk about something as a crisis, it means that you recognize the reality of the world that we're in and you fight to change it. When you talk about it as a catastrophe, you employ a notion of cynicism that echoes Margaret Thatcher's commentary about neoliberalism, which is there's no alternative. There's no such thing as an alternative. This is it. And I think when you convince people that this is it, it's very easy to look to heroic figures who make claims and lies and trade off fears and conspiracy theories and say, don't worry, I can do it all. I'm your hero. I'll solve all these problems for you. Don't think, just be loyal. 
Don't think about justice. Just fight justice wherever you find it, because you know why? It makes the world too complex, and it puts upon us social responsibilities that would demand that we have to transcend and connect our own private issues. Let's get to that social responsibility for a moment, because you write, we live at a time in which disorder and manufactured ignorance have become normalized. Too many Americans view freedom as simply an individual right and ignore the fact that it is also a matter of social responsibility. What happens to our understanding of freedom when individual uh, rights trump social responsibility? I think that when you when you abstract questions of social responsibility from freedom, it becomes poisonous. It becomes rooted in a kind of self-interest and a kind of selfishness and a kind of regressive sort of individualism that basically allows people to separate themselves not only from the world around themselves in some fundamental way, fundamentally just way, but it also means that they don't have to take on the question of what freedom really means, which is that how does freedom in a sense point to a larger demand that we do everything we can to make people free from poverty, to make people free from war, to make people free from homelessness, to make people free from not having access to daycare, to make people free from living in a a world in which time itself uh, becomes a liability. Under, simply because people are, are struggling under what I call a politics of survival, just trying to figure out every day how just to get by. Their agency is so limited that it's almost impossible to do anything else. So this freedom from uh, has now been distorted under neoliberalism into a flight from any, any notion of social responsibility, any notion of democracy, and any real notion of the social contract. Look, when you have the hard right wing vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, who are willing to basically, in the name of freedom, kill their grandmothers, infect their children, prevent people from basically getting uh, surgeries that could save their lives, in the name of freedom, no less. That's a freedom that is so distorted in terms of what it means to be alive, to, to the interconnections that we need to survive collectively with dignity as opposed with injustices. It always just reminds me of this uh, fight for having the freedom to have uh, weapons being openly carried. Well, I want to have the freedom of feeling safe in public and not having people walking around with guns. So I That's guess, right. So can freedom exist that is both about individual rights and social re- responsibility? Can they coexist, or is it a zero-sum game? Oh, I, no, it's not a zero-sum game. I don't see how you can have one without the other. And, but, I, but I think that's the issue. The issue is how does one inform the other that expands the, nation, the notion of human possibility rather than expand the notion of fear? I mean, I I think that this question of fear and freedom is really important because generally people talk about freedom not in terms of shared values, but in terms of shared fears. You know, I have to buy a gun because, you know, know, what freedom really means is I need to be freedom to be safe. You know, not safe from poverty, not safe from, you know, a, a, a really unjust medical system, not safe from the collapse of a public health system, not safe from schools being defunded and our kids being turned into idiots because they were just teaching for the test. Uh, you see what happens here. I, I mean, when freedom, freedom is reduced to simply oneself and protecting oneself, then the question of individual rights gets so distorted that it's disconnected from the question of social responsibility. Let me put it differently, if I may. Look, we live in a country 
that talks about two kinds of rights. They talk about political rights and they talk about personal rights. And that's okay. I get it. You know, we should have the right to, to demonstrate, we should form political parties, blah, blah, blah. Individual rights, the right to assemble where we want. But those rights become meaningless if you don't have economic rights. I don't know what it means to say I have the right to read up as much as possible and engage in the electoral process or to examine how it's being distorted if I'm struggling just to survive. And I think that when freedom encompasses, you know, as, as Winston Churchill once said, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, it expands the notion of rights to include economic rights. Then the notion of freedom becomes more meaningful because it combines individual rights with basically a sense of collective rights and the collective good. You're right that struggling for a better world seems almost incomprehensible in a society where the pathology of power, privatization, and greed have turned the self turned the self inward to the point where any notion of social commitment and struggle for social justice appears either as a weakness or is treated with disdain. Do you believe those who have disdain for social justice view it as a threat to their freedom? Is social justice a threat to white privilege, and that's why it is seen with disdain? Oh, I, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think that... When you get a commentator on, a, on conservative commentators on conservative radio shows talking about how white people are now victimized by virtue of what they call replacement theory, meaning that blacks, people of color, brown people uh, are threatening genocide against white people because they're going to replace them because they may not be the majority uh, in the future. That's white supremacy. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, that's that's an argument for racial cleansing. And, and, and it seems to me that these arguments speak to something deeper in the culture that we need to really come to grips with. And that's the legacy of white supremacy. We need to come to grips with this. I mean, we need to recognize that if we don't address those issues, we're, we're in enormous trouble. You also point out that civic courage loses its ethical moorings when it fails to relate the collapse of conscience to the collapse of the welfare state. How do you see those two things, the collapse of conscience to the collapse of the welfare state? How do you see those two things related? I think to the degree to which we give up on providing economic rights for people, to the degree to which we don't take on the social responsibility of eliminating human suffering and injustices and, and those, uh, those elements of the population that basically are, are viewed as disposable, uh, then I think that we, we, we create a society that mod is modeled after the Wild West. You know, the strongest survive and the weakest die, and that's it. <laughs> so we have no obligations to the sick, no obligations to the elderly, no obligations to young people. We write them out of the social contract. We write them out of democracy, out of the script of democracy. And I, and I, I think it seems to me that, you know, this notion of social responsibility, again, its most expanded notion, just has to basically address what it means to minimize in society those forms of human suffering that drag us all down. You know, Baldwin was right, you know, when he, when he said to the effect, when you have racism in society, he says it's not just about the fear of the black man, it's about the uh, black people, it's about the, you know, you have, that fear cripples you. You, you lose your, your sense of agency, you know, you lose your sense of fear, you lose your sense of possibility, you live in fear all your life. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, this, this notion of constantly being drummed up 
by the conservative media that the world is at war, you know, that domestic terrorism has emerged in the United States and it's being waged by, by you know, those people considered disposable, people of color, black people, anybody who doesn't fit into that white Christian notion of what it means to be a citizenship. The notion of citizenship has been narrowed to the point where the public sphere, so it's being claimed, should only be inhabited by white people. How else do you explain voter suppression and what the Republican Party, now really basically a fascist party, is now doing? I mean, it's impossible. Uh, this, this is a party that now is unapologetically racist, unapologetically authoritarian, unapologetically dangerous. A party that basically now believes that it's perfectly acceptable to shoot people like Nancy Pelosi in the head because she's somehow now defined as the enemy. Is, in your opinion, is the Democratic Party in any way complicit in that move toward fascism within the Republican Party? The Democratic Party has always been complicit. It's just less complicit. I mean, at least the Democratic Party has some sense of social justice and social welfare, but it's the party of Wall Street. I'm sorry. You know, this is not the party of Bernie Sanders. I mean, this is not the party of, of those brave young women in, in Congress who are fighting for justice. We need a third party. But I think that also evades in some way the subject, right? We don't need just a third party. We need to abolish capitalism. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, you, you want the world to survive? Fight for democratic socialism. Capitalism has to go. It doesn't work. It's dangerous. Uh, and it's particularly dangerous in its current uh, form. You argue freedom has partially collapsed into a moral nihilism that creates a straight line from politics to catastrophe to apocalypse. Chaos, uncertainty, loneliness, and fear define the current historical movement. How can that moral nihilism, that idea that life is meaningless, be overcome in a time of crisis, whether that crisis is the pandemic or the larger term, longer term crisis that we're already experiencing with climate change? I think there are a couple of things to be said here. First, we need a new language to recognize what the roots of these crises are about. And we need to recognize that democracy in some fundamental way has to be addressed. Secondly, we have to create a mass party, uh, a mass social movement that brings together elements of the left and progressives who can basically create a united front to combine what I would call three basic elements. And that would be political education, cultural politics, and direct action. I, I don't believe that the electoral system will solve anything anymore. It's too corrupt. And I, and I think that what really has to be done is we, we have to begin to shut down uh, this, this, this regime of tyranny in ways that has immediate consequences, nonviolent consequences. I don't care if that means massive strikes. I don't mean if that means occupying the streets. Uh, but we need to both educate people and create a mass movement in order to stop this. Uh, we don't have a lot of time here. I mean, I, I think just in terms of the ecological struggle, if we have 10 years, I'd be shocked if this continues in the way it's going. First of all, Henry, it's always just a pleasure to talk to you. Just two more questions for you. You write, in too many cases, learned helplessness leads to learned hopelessness. A culture of consumerism, sensationalism, immediacy, and manufactured ignorance obscures how political and moral passions substitute sheer rage, anger, and emotion for a thoughtful defense of truth, 
the social contract, civic culture, a culture of questioning, and democracy itself. What role do you believe consumerism, sensationalism, immediacy plays in the hate and divisiveness that many are singularly blaming on social media? Is hate and divisiveness all social media's fault, or more generally, are consumerism, sensationalism, and immediacy to blame? No, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, it, you know, I, I try to get away from that kind of binarism. Uh, I, I think the real question is what drives the social media to produce the kind of hate that you're talking about? And I think what drives it basically now is a fascist corporate politics that makes a lot of money off it and sees uh, enormous political advantages in putting governments in place uh, that basically will reduce their taxes and do everything else to make them even more powerful. At the same time, it seems to me the struggle over what it means to face up to the kind of hatred and the language of bigotry that we're surrounded with is to really sort of take very seriously the culture that we find ourselves in and how that culture functions in the interest of a machinery of exclusion and social death. And I think to do that, uh, we, we have to recognize that education not only goes on in schools, but it goes on in wider cultural apparatuses that really need to be challenged, and they need to be reappropriated. I mean, the left and progressives really need uh, a, a, a million This Is Hell programs. You know, it needs a million people like you in the streets, talking, writing. It needs to transform all of us into public intellectuals that can fight for in, in, a cultural politics that offers a new language and offers hope and brings people together in a different sense of solidarity and community. But is what we do, which is hopefully inform people, is that enough? It, it's, it's, it's enough. It's, no, it's not enough, but it's foundational. I, I think the real question is how do you both inform people and how do you inspire them and energize them to connect ideas to actions? That seems to me to be the formula that's most powerful. We don't want to isolate knowledge and in, in what it means to make people critical by claiming that they don't have to do anything with that, that this is just an exercise in critical thinking. We have to do what Paulo Freire used to say. You know, we have to create a form of consciousness that suggests that what, with knowledge, with being informed, comes social responsibility, comes action, comes a way of translating what we know into what I would call the script of justice. We have had the great pleasure of having Henry Giroux back on our show. Henry wrote the Truth Out article amid apocalyptic cynicism. Let's embrace radical hope in the new year. Thanks to listener Ken M. for suggesting we have Henry back on the show. Henry's newest book, Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance, is set to be published by Bloomsbury in March. Henry was on most recently back in June of 2020 when we discussed his counterpunch article, Racial Domestic Terrorism and the Legacy of State Violence, which you can find right now by searching on Henry's name at our website, thisishell.com. Follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giroux. Find out more about Henry at henryageroux.com. And as you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response. Many believe that capitalism in the market, with its incentivizations and motivations, that that will lead to competition and improve technology that will somehow save us from climate change. Last week, we spoke with Aaron Vansigian, who wrote the Uneven Earth article, 
faith in a frail world. A journey through British Columbia this November showed how fragile the economy really is. Aaron's eyewitness account of the flooding, mudslides, and snowstorms in British Columbia from mid-November to early December of last year. Aaron also pointed out that those disruptions are uh, uh, being mentioned when it are not being mentioned when it comes to the current problems with the supply chain. So our question from Hal for you is. If capitalism can't save us from climate change, can climate change save us from capitalism? I, I don't think climate change is going to save us from anything. I think what's going to save us is a mass movement that can relate climate change to a whole range of other issues so that we have a, a comprehensive politics in our view that gets right to the root of the problem. We need to not only talk about ecological destruction, we need to talk about the threat of nuclear war. You know, we need to talk about the, the assault on democracy. We need to talk about the rise of fascism. We need to talk about what it means to educate people to understand in its totality, rather than isolated issues, a fabric that has been produced over the last 40, 50 years from the age of Reagan on, particularly, that we need to address in order to free ourselves from the shackles of a capitalism that is destroying everything. Henry, it is always a pleasure. It's always enlightening. It's always informative. It's always inspiring when I speak with you. Thank you so much for being back on our show. And I promise we're not going to skip another year and have you not on the show for a year. Thank you so much for being back on the show. I, you know I always appreciate it. I missed you. I can't believe you didn't have me on for a year. I know. It's crazy. All right. Listen, <laughs> man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Putting people before profits since 1996 which is a horrible business model. This is hell. Wow. I really love having Henry on the show. If what you just heard from Henry Giroux on the self-defeatism of apocalyptic cynicism, if that in some way enlightened or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which now streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Again, the Patreon podcast is, has moved to Thursdays. Or you can just show your support of completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support and see all the different ways that you can support This Is Hell. On our first Patreon podcast of the year, which we posted on Thursday, January 6th, the one-year anniversary of whatever the hell that was that happened on the previous January 6th, I gave my predictions for 2022 by first apologizing for such a hack idea as offering predictions for the upcoming year. Then I gave a very accurate prediction that nothing resembling what happened last year on January 6th would happen this year on January 6th. For instance, last, last year we were not subject to the horrifying spectacle of Nancy Pelosi introducing a song from the cast of the hit musical Hamilton as some way a display of supporting democracy. Unlike others who make such predictions, as I did, I also promise to be held accountable for mine, and we will return to them on our final Patreon podcast of this year, 2022, the day after the upcoming winter solstice, to see how right or wrong I really was. Also on Patreon, we shared an interview we did back in September of 2000 with then-members of Voices in the Wilderness, three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Kathy Kelly and a former correspondent on our show, Danny Muller. At the time, Kathy and Danny were openly violating U.S. economic sanctions against Iraq by illegally bringing much-needed medicine to Iraqis as well as toys for children who are the most vulnerable to and affected by 
sanctions. But you can only hear my predictions for for 2022 and our conversation from a year prior to 9-11 on the inhumane sanctions against Iraq by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? And we have a few answers. <laughs> what are you testing positive for? This cannot be good for people who are trying to protect their medical privacy. That is true. <laughs> Kevin O is testing positive for negativity. <laughs> oh, God. Z- what a contrarian. <laughs> Zach N is testing positive for a bad case of loving you. Oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Garrett S. is testing positive for the alien from The Thing. <laughs> and he provided a little animated GIF, GIF kind of thing of a spider popping out of a per- an- cartoon head. So it's not Ian Holm actually coming out of the alien this in the movie. Generic. I see. <clears throat> Another Garrett, Garrett L., is testing positive for apathy, I guess. That's the demographic we're shooting for, Garrett's. People are, with the first name of Garrett. We're overrun with Garrett's. <laughs> Fabio is testing positive for existential exhaustion. Okay. I think everybody's got that right now. Our Ronaldo is testing positive for pasta fuzzle. Is there a rapid test for that? Do we know? <laughs> Our PD is testing positive for the hell of it. <laughs> I thought he was going to say for your mom. I thought for sure he was going to say that he was testing positive for my mom. And last one for today is Jeremy is testing positive for murderous rage for BSers, not the fun kind, and slanderers. All right, then. Again, the question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email it to myself at chuck at this is hell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history on January 11th, 1896, 126 years ago Tuesday in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. Patrick Morris, a white railroad worker, and his wife Charlotte, who was black, were awakened shortly before midnight by a group of some 20 white men who had set their had set fire to their house, in which they sometimes rented rooms by the night to African-American travelers. Now, I know this is not the kind of history con- conservatives want taught in public schools, but you can hear it nearly every week here on This Is Hell during Rotten History. Mr. Morris acted fast and it managed to put the fire out, but less than an hour later, the house was on fire again. And this time, as the couple ran out the front door to escape the flames... They were immediately shot to death by the white mob. Conservatives claim learning this kind of history makes white children ashamed for being white, which is weird. You'd think, if anything, the lesson learned would be how horrible and deadly racism can be. But that's probably not a history lesson conservatives want their children to learn. Meanwhile, the Morris's 12-year-old son ran out the back door and escaped into the night. The charred remains of his parents, Patrick and Charlotte Morris, were found in the ruins of the house the next morning. Though their son offered an eyewitness account to law enforcement, no one was ever held accountable for their deaths. 
Not only is this history lesson not being taught in schools, the actual eyewitness to this history was completely dismissed and utterly ignored. I'm sure that they were upset about his embrace of critical race theory. So don't expect to find primary source evidence, especially newspapers reporting on this deadly racist tragedy. And that's how you erase racism from history. Richard, you have the next segment in Rotten History. I don't know how I can follow that up. Yeah, it's a brutal one. But this is Rotten History, so we have more Rotten History. On January 13th, 1985, 37 years ago this Thursday, in Ethiopia, an overcrowded express train was carrying about 1,000 passengers from the city of Dair Dawa to the nation's capital, Addis Ababa, along a French-built railway line that eventually leads to the Red Sea port of Djibouti. Djibouti. (laughs) About 125 miles short of the capital, the train came to a curved bridge over a deep river gorge in the valley of the Awash. At that point, four carriages at the end of the train derailed pulling the rest of the train off the tracks and tumbling some 35 feet down into the dry riverbed. About 450 people were killed and more than 500 injured. The train's engineer, who survived the accident, was quickly arrested for having failed to reduce speed upon reaching the bridge. The accident remains the most deadly railroad disaster in Africa's history. The only thing that pops up in rotten history as much as deadly racism and coal mines, it's got to be trains. And sure, you can blame blame the engineer for going too fast, but I'm going to blame the French railway builders and colonialism. But that's just me. Finally, in rotten history, you're going to say something. Oh, I was like, no, it's the overcrowding of the train. That's probably a big part of it, too. (laughs) That's a good point. Capitalism's probably an issue along the way. Finally, in rotten history, January 14th, 1963, 59 years ago, Friday, in Montgomery, Alabama, newly elected Governor George Wallace, who is also regularly featured in rotten history because his life was filled with rottenness, Governor Wallace delivered an inaugural address in which he loudly denounced racial integration and regulatory influence by the federal government, mostly because he was an avowed racist. In the most infamous part of the speech, he voiced his staunch support for, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever, because George Wallace was a dick. Five months later, Wallace would stage a political media event by standing in the doorway of a University of Alabama building to prevent two black students from registering for classes there, which again, conservatives do not want their children taught in public school because they claim it makes their kids feel bad, when in reality it only upsets their racist parents. That stunt by Wallace would make him a nationally known figure, eventually leading to a 1968 presidential campaign in which, as a third-party candidate, he would gain more than 10 million popular votes, as well as the electoral votes of five southern states, because, because only 59 years ago, you could run as a racist, I guess that would be 54 years ago, you could run as a racist openly and actually win states. Wallace's second presidential run in 1972 as a Democrat would be abruptly ended by a bullet from a would-be assassin, would leave Wallace paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, racists today are still only paralyzed from the neck up. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Richard, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell this week? 
Yes, Tuesday, we have law professor John R. Brooks on his article, The Big Student Loan Lie for the American Prospect. Ah, that big student loan lie. I love getting that letter in the mail saying that we want you to pay up on all your student loans, even though we do not know who owns your debt right now. I don't know if I'm going to be paying that off real soon. Uh, What about uh, the final guest on this week's show? On Wednesday, Naomi Oreskes and Jeff Nesbitt on their Gizmodo article, how big oil rigs the system to keep winning? How big oil rigs the system to keep winning? I know. It's a really <laughs> annoying headline. Plus a moment of truth from Jeffy, of course. How big oil rigs the system? <laughs> There's got to be some sort of punctuation for that pause and not just ellipsis, Mark. Uh, thanks to our guest today, Henry Giroux, who wrote the Truth Out article amid apocalyptic cynicism. Let's embrace radical hope in the new year. Finally, a couple thoughts on our final guest last week, Aaron Van Sigian, who wrote the Uneven Earth article, Faith in a Frail World, a journey through British Columbia this November, showed how fragile the economy really is. Aaron's eyewitness account of the flooding mudslides and snowstorms in British Columbia from mid-November to early December of last year. And as I was just asking Henry in the question from hell, I asked Henry, you know, can, uh, clim- or can climate change save us from capitalism? A lot of people think capitalism can save us from climate change. So I turned it on its head because of the disruptions that happen within logistics due to climate change. So that was why I was asking that question to Henry. What I got out of that conversation with Aaron was that capitalism cannot save us from climate change, but get this, climate change might be able to save us from capitalism. That is, with all the logistical disruptions climate change may cause and can cause and has caused to the supply chain, including and especially its dependence on just-in-time inventory management, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's not being discussed. The idea of just-in-time inventory management is suppliers do not depend as much on warehouses and warehouse space and warehouse costs, or, you know, are undermined by warehouse costs. Instead, goods are delivered immediately before they're needed in order to minimize inventory and those warehousing costs. But to do so, there cannot be any disruption in that supply chain. Just-in-time logistics is in complete denial of any climate change and its impact that it might have on globalization, and in complete denial of globalization's contributions to global warming. Just-in-time assumes that the climate will never ever interfere with the distribution of goods, and that the global distribution of goods and the imposed export-oriented nature of local economies by groups like the U.S.-dominated International Monetary Fund and World Bank is what is best for everybody, when in reality it's a driving force behind global inequality and climate change. That's because globalization is just another redistribution of wealth upwards to the wealthiest, from the poorest to the wealthiest, without any consideration of what is best for locals or that globalization or of globalization's role in global warming it would seem that globalized capitalism cannot be stopped that there is no force on earth even the will of the people that can stop capitalism's most destructive incarnation yet or is there what if as aaron was describing on the final interview of last week's show which you can find at this is hell.com right now what if the destructive force of climate change which already threatens tens of millions of lives can stop the destructive force of globalized capitalism and worldwide ne- neoliberalism which threatens hundreds of millions if not into the billions what if technology motivated by market-based competition and incentivization cannot save us and continues to lead to our destruction but the actual burning of our planet through climate change, can finally stop the madness of globalization. 
Does that mean we should be rooting for climate change to finally end a market-based theology that believes and has deep faith in the self-interest of prophets? Is that why so many have so many are in deep denial of climate change because they they know deep down that not only is climate change a threat to the planet, but more so, it's a threat to capitalism? Is that why conservatives, especially on Fox News Channel and the like, were for years saying capitalism or sorry, capitalism were for years saying Climate change was a socialist plot because they knew that in the face of global warming, capitalism is unsustainable. And therefore, they sided with saving capitalism instead of saving the planet and the people who live on that planet, namely us. And most importantly, does rooting for climate change to finally stop capitalism in its tracks prove yet again this is hell. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for booking this week's guest. This week's Hangover Cure is an Alka-Seltzer old-fashioned We Told You So. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>